So, all right, thanks for coming. Everyone. We are going to be talking, please God, over the next four weeks in topics called Patterns in Jewish History. Now, I, I ran a course on the same topic, uh, well, at least in the same subject material, although I did slightly different topics in the East last year, which was quite a fascinating um, discovery as far as studying the various materials. Because Jewish history, history in general, but I think Jewish history in particular, has a funny way of repeating itself from time and time again. And as you... Well, there are security on the door, so I'm hoping that someone will open uh, eventually. Um, but, but Jewish history in particular has these ongoing themes... Hi, Andrew. Hey, Dan has these ongoing themes that consistently repeat themselves. And I suppose what, what, what I hope to do over the course of this is not so much to, to teach you something you don't know, but to somehow structure it in a way that you've never really thought about it. And seeing that as we look to the world today, and you see what's happening in the Jewish community today, which I'm not sure how much we know about what's happening in the Jewish world at the moment. I think we often know what's happening you know, up in the upper north shore of Judaism. Maybe we know a little bit what's happening in Sydney and Australia in general and possibly what's happening in Israel. But what's happening internationally in the Jewish community is like what's happening in the Jewish community in Germany, in America, in, uh, in Canada, in South America. And all of these things are just repeating themselves. That every generation, as we lament and say, oh my goodness, what's going to be? We say, well, truth be told, just look 100 years ago, 200 years ago, this exact same thing happened, and it's going to end exactly the same way that those ones ended, if it follows the same trajectory. And the reason I say it is not because I have one precedent, it's because I have tens of precedents that have all gone down the exact same model. Phil, assuming you're coming to hear me and not for a treasury meeting of some form. So, um, so, so that, that those models consistently repeat themselves. And where they, the things we're going to really look at, and albeit that we're going to deal with a, a number of different topics, so it's not we're dealing with assimilation, acculturation, and isolation. Truth be told, virtually every topic, and I've got about eight of them, although I'm only doing four in this series, that all pretty much come around the idea that as soon as the gates to broader society are open to the Jewish community, all of a sudden, different things start happening in those Jewish communities. Meaning, so, so long as we are... Guys? I, I was hoping. <laughs> Yo, now you, now you are stuck with me. So. Hello. She comes to Shu and she's in trouble. You know, I, I would say the other way. If she didn't come to Shu, she'd be in trouble. Okay. So just for those who just arrived, we just gave a basic idea of, of this concept of Jewish history being patterns that consistently repeat themselves through our history. And what I'm hoping to achieve over the course of is the three topics that, or the four topics that we will be discussing is not so much pointing out something that, is, uh, that you've never heard of, but somehow just structured in such a way that you never really um, saw it in that way. So tonight's topic, which is acculturation, assimilation, and isolation, which is basically three Jewish responses to the, you know, the breaking down the walls of the ghetto that have happened from time immemorial. Consistently, wherever the non-Jewish host government there where we find ourselves has offered us opportunities to integrate into broader society, these are three responses that the Jewish community, without exception, have responded to those advances by broader society. And the way that every shear is going to go is we're going to have a bit of a timeline so I can give you a little bit of a perspective of where these things have happened along the time, let's say the time continuum. So where, this is by way of, where in Jewish, and we're going to start from biblical history, and that's why I'm saying biblical history, medieval, and the, let's say the more modern, you know, and truth is, and not in, everywhere in between. But the first time that this really becomes a challenge is Egypt. Now, I'm not sure if we really appreciate that, but let's just go through the Egypt narrative that we may be familiar with, but perhaps not as familiar as we might be. So, the Jews go down to Egypt. So, the reason the Jews go down to Egypt, there's a famine in Israel, and there's no food to eat, and they, the brothers, Jacob sends the sons down to go get food in Egypt, and there's this 
really nasty chancellor, viceroy in Egypt, who gives him a hard time, turns out to be Joseph. And, and Joseph sends messages back to Jacob saying, you know, we've got food here, I'm in charge here, come down, bring the family, I will take care of you over here. That part of the story we know. What then happens over the passage of time, so, <laughs> your wife's here, so I assume you're coming to the same place. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, so what happens when we go down to Egypt is Joseph you know, goes to his brothers, and, and it's quite a fascinating interaction that happens in the initial connection between Joseph and his brothers. The brothers come down, and Joseph reveals himself and says to them, listen, Pharaoh's going to want to speak to you guys. When you get to Pharaoh, he's going to ask you what you do for a living. You need to tell him. Does anyone know how this ends? Oh. No. Tell them that you are a shepherd. Why must you tell them you're a shepherd? Because shepherds are the most detested of professions in Egypt. Okay? So, so... Ah, so... Alright, so Sandra said, so imagine like this. We've got this whole group of immigrants that have just arrived here from Afghanistan. Yeah? And, uh, you know, Malcolm Turnbull goes on to the tarmac to meet this whole family that's arrived, all 70 of them that have arrived to live in. Uh, and they say, he says to me, well, welcome to Australia, welcome to our shores. We, great, we are very grateful and happy to offer you asylum in our country. Tell us, what is it that you bring with you? And they said, well... Back in Afghanistan, we were in the uh, poppy opium industry, and we were hoping to be able to peddle our wares down under because we understand there's a great drug market over here. So, so you'd think that Malcolm Turnbull would say, yeah, get back. Villa would head you back to Afghanistan. But that's exactly what the brothers do. They come in and say, you, this is the most hated profession in Egypt. And when I'm saying this, this is not... Rashi or commentaries. This is exactly what it says in the text. You tell them that you shepherd so that you will be detested and they will force you to live in the land of Goshen. So that part you, you might have heard of. The land of Goshen is mentioned in the Haggadah a few times. The Jews who live in the land of Goshen. And this is fantastic because the whole idea, and Joseph says this and Jacob says it just in his deathbed, stay away. You stay away from the Egyptians. They'll hate you. You will stay away from them. And so long as there's this animosity between you and the Egyptians, the Jewish people as a nation are safe. What starts to happen is at the end of Bereshit, is the Jews start to multiply. And all the Midrashim and all the commentaries start talking about not so much that the numbers, the pure numbers of the Jews in Egypt grow, but the power. The terms that are used, and we read about this in Haggadah, they became Mitsuyanim, they became exceptionally wealthy, they became exceptionally powerful. The Midrashim said, now this is, uh, you know, Midrash was written 1500 years ago. It says that the entertainment industry in Egypt, 1500 years ago, that all the theatres and all the circuses and all the stadiums were packed and run by the Israelites. Okay, so what starts happening now? What is it? The Jews were living in Goshen, right? Now, just think, what changes? Did the Jews always live in Goshen? You know the answer to this. Think about it. What do we do on Pesach night? So on Pesach night, they had to take the Paschal lamb, and what do they do with the blood? Put on the doors. Why? So God could distinguish between the homes of the Egyptians and the homes of the Jews. Let me ask you something. If all the Jews are living in Goshen, what's the whole cup of distinguishment? The Jews had intermingled with the Egyptians to such a point that it was almost indistinguishable who was Jewish, who was Egyptian. I mean, the great irony that the great leader that took us out of Egypt never has a Jewish name. He has an Egyptian name. And beyond that, the, we read in last week's parasha. It says, am. It says, when Pharaoh took us out of Egypt, it says, malu So there's a, there's a Medrash that comes and says the word chamushim, which usually means armed, but the Medrash comes and says, no, echad only one-fifth of the Jews left Egypt because four-fifths of the Jews did not want to leave. That as bad as things got in Egypt, when you've lived there for 400 years, whether it be because of a slave mentality or whether because this is home, the reality is 
the vast majority of the Israelites saw Egypt as home. And so this is the first time that we start confronting this. The, the various rabbinic texts start struggling with this idea about the Jewish names at Brit Milah. There was no circumcision of the Jews in Egypt. In fact, it's the first thing that when Moses commands the Paschal Lamb, one of the prerequisites for the Passover sacrifice is you have to be circumcised. So they have a circumcision just before they do the first Paschal Lamb because no one was brisked. So you have this, this, this open you know, society where Jews are being welcomed into Egypt and it is that point where a new king arises in Egypt that didn't know Joseph. He either ignored the contributions of Joseph or the time had passed so much that the contributions of Joseph had just been um, forgotten or ignored. But there's a new king and all of a sudden he looks around and he sees these people everywhere and he says, we have a problem. We need to deal wisely with these people. So what are the you know, approaches? So that's the first time that we see it happening in our history. Can you just clarify yeah. something? What you're saying is that Joseph took the Jews, or they came to Joseph in, in Egypt long before Moses appeared on the scene. Yeah, Joseph Joseph's 400 years before Moses. Uh-huh. Alright, so, so, so what happens now is the three responses that are going to happen. Isolation, integration, and assimilation. So assimilation is as soon as the opportunities come for us to remove the shackles of Jewish stigma, Jewish law, Jewish ritual, and to become part of the broader society, that is what we're going to do. We only carry this baggage called Jewish history because it's forced upon us by the non-Jewish nations. But as soon as they allow us to get rid of it, we will embrace them. It is, it is heavy burden to be Jewish. We don't want a part of it. The second response is the complete other opposite. So we have assimilation that I'm no longer Jewish, I'm now Egyptian. And we see that. The second response is the complete opposite is that I am so frightened of the non-Jewish society within which I live that the only way to protect ourselves is to isolate ourselves of self-imposed ghettos, whether they are literal or figurative. But we will insulate ourselves from any influence from the outside world, cut ourselves off from any form of media, influence, culture, and education, but we need to be a self-sustaining society that needs nothing and wants nothing from broader society. So that's the other extreme. And then you have integration. And integration is being, how do we are somehow able to adopt and imbue within our own culture the positives of broader society, yet reject the negative influences that that society has? And those three responses we start seeing already in Egypt. Although in Egypt it's, it's a lot murkier, we'll see it as we go through time. So here we have Egypt. Let me give some timing here. So this is in the this is fifteen twenty. This is in fifteen twenty three. So I'm actually have to do it. This is two thousand sixteen. This is the year it's, uh, before the Common Era. We. Uh, yeah, BCE, sorry, so BCE. So this is, this is where you have Joseph, and it's at 400 years later, you know, with, you know, around the year 2000. That's when you're going to start, uh, and BCE, that is where you're going to have Moses. Okay. Huh? I'm doing the wrong way, aren't you right? Sorry, 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 sorry. 1123, sorry. I have to have a mathematician here, huh? All right. Okay, so... So that's, that's, so we go from that point. And now throughout uh, Jewish biblical history, through the, out, you know, the wandering of the years, there's no real problem there. They do find a few occasions throughout the Torah and throughout the latter parts of the prophets where we do see these come as challenges on a much more minor scale. So we see idol worshipping cults and the like and the influences that they have on the Israelites throughout the book of Judges and, and, and Kings, etc., etc. But the real big you know, knack, the real big uh, confrontation that happens for the Jewish people doesn't happen too much later. And this is really almost at, at the turn of the, you know, into the common era. And that is the Hanukkah story, which very few people appreciate. So the Hanukkah story, we're talking, you know, you know so this is the, we're talking like 160 odd years here, 
in a BCE. And just to appreciate the, the influence of what happened during the time of Hanukkah. So you ask most people what happened in the story of Hanukkah. So people say, well, there were these Greeks, and the Greeks were like the bad guys, and the, the Maccabees came and fought the Greeks. And there was this big war, and the Greeks lost, and the Maccabees won, and, and that's the story. But if you go look, and, and the, the book is told, interesting, if you want to go read the story of the Maccabees, you need to go look in the New Testament, because it doesn't actually exist in the Old Testament. It's, uh, for some reason, was always excluded. But B Book of Maccabees comes and tells a very, very different story. That the war was not a war between the Jews and the Greeks. The war was between Judaism and Hellenism. Now, what does that mean? For tens and purposes, Greek society was a very um, accommodating society. It wasn't one that enslaved all the nations in which it conquered. It, it saw itself and its influence being much more in trying to acculturate and trying to educate societies around the world to a more, far superior um, and more academic lifestyle. When you know, the Syrian Greeks took over the, you know, Israel and the broader Judean area, what they came to bring was not to get rid of the Jews or to enslave the Jews, which the Romans do. What the Greeks came to do is to try and make the Jews Hellenized by getting rid of Judaism. And so the Great War was not on Jews, it was on Judaism. So where the laws came in, so the Greeks came in and they said that no longer can you fulfill the laws of Torah. So, so the, 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 the mikvahs were closed down, the yeshivas were closed down, the, 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 the temple itself was turned into a, a pagan, an idol-worshipping uh, holy place. The concepts of gymnasiums and the concept of the, the glorification of the human form, something that was very much antagonistic to the whole Jewish ideal, was something that became a battle not between Greeks and Jews, but between Jews and Jews. So, a little bit about the halachas. So, everyone knows the story that uh, the Greek oil, that, you know, the story that the Maccabees won the battle and they got into the temple and there was only oil enough for one. Because what happened to the oil? So all the oil was defiled. So uh, in, in Jewish law, pardon? Nothing happened to come from Galilee or something. Didn't have to get fresh oil from Galilee. Well, they, there was oil. That's what the, what the, the Talmud says is that there was only enough oil that had the signet of the Kohen Gadol, of the high priest. Meaning there was only one flask of, of, of pure oil. We have, a, we have a law in Halacha about purity and impurity. One of the things about impurity, as far as if I've got a pure thing of oil, how do you defile it? So the Halacha is, the only person who can defile oil is another Jew. A pagan cannot defile oil. So if, if a pagan can't defile oil, why was all the oil in the temple defiled? So the answer is, because it was defiled by Jews. And the Great Wars, the, the, if, if you're familiar with the, the story of Hanukkah, so it was started off by a guy named Matityahu, Matthew. So Matityahu in a place called Modi'in. So Modi'in is still you know, it's where the Chazan, Chazan Ion lives. It's in the, sort of in the center of Israel. And the story goes there that there, that there was a, a local priest, if I remember, his name was, his name will come in. It's like, like a very Australian name. It wasn't Shane or Gary or Warwick or something like that. But, but there was, but there was uh, Jason. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. So they, they went to Moody Inn and the local resident said, we need to offer up a sacrifice to whoever it was, or Zeus. I don't know who they were offering uh, the, the sacrifice to. And they offered up a pig. And they wanted one of Matityahu, his children, to offer it. He refused. And this guy, Jason, got up and sacrificed. And, and Matityahu said at that point, no more. And he gets up and kills Jason. And only some up and they kill the Greeks. And that starts the Great Revolution. But what you already have over here is the first real civil war that is existing on culture. So throughout, the, throughout biblical texts, there's plenty of civil war. But the civil war over there are politically based. They're not culturally based. They're not a matter that, you know, based on what is the correct way to live our lifestyle, whether a Jewish lifestyle or non, you know, a non-Jewish influence. But much more the, 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 the clash of cultures throughout biblical history was always, you know, pagan uh, lifestyles, you know, as opposed to Jewish lifestyle. And this sort of culminates in the whole story of Hanukkah. So the whole festival of Hanukkah, if you look to it in different, so a few of the halachas of Hanukkah, whereas in Purim, Purim we, we eat, drink, and be merry, 
on Hanukkah there's no mitzvah to eat. I mean, it's hard to believe that there is a Jewish festival where there's no mitzvah to eat. You know, there's a, hard to believe there's a day that there's no mitzvah to eat in Judaism. But the, but the Allah says there's no mitzvah to eat because wherever there is a mitzvah to eat is to, because it is somehow to reward your physical body because the miracle happened that saved your physical body. Meaning, in Purim, we are, our lives were a threat. So our bodies were going to be destroyed. Therefore, the, 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 how do we do it? So we, we satiate our bodies. Hanukkah, there was never a threat to the physical form, and therefore the celebration has no physical component to it. It lights a candle, and it's supposed to be a purely spiritual experience. Okay, so that's the second time that it comes in, like more, let's say, you know, traditional Jewish circles. I want to jump um, many years later. I mean, I'm going to do a significant jump because the, there are not many periods from the destruction of the temple that happened in the year 70 of the Common Era. Up until the 1800s, except for one or two real, you know, notable exceptions, such as Spain, you know, prior to the, the expulsion, Jews were always at best second-class citizens. The concept of being embraced into the community of nations was something never afforded the Jewish community. Even in Spain, in the golden ages of Spain, the Jews were still second-class citizens. They were just treated better. Like, when we talk... Um, you know, in, in Jewish history in general, our, our, the Jewish lot under Christian Europe was always much more severe than the Jewish lot under, under the, the, you know, the, the Muslim communities. But that's not to, for a second to think that we had it good under the Muslims. We just had it better because the Muslims were just oppressing us, whereas the Christianity, you know, the Christian communities were killing us. It's, it's, it's interesting. Up until the Holocaust... There was always a get-out-of-jail card for the Jews of Europe, and that was conversion. Throughout our history, whenever you, if a Jew wanted you know, a passport into broader society, all he had to do was convert to Christianity. And that was true up until the Shoah. Up until the Shoah. At the Shoah, we were never given the option. But up until the Shoah, there was always that passport. Out. So... Throughout you know, the Middle Ages, there's not a whole lot of this question of Jewish assimilation. You do have apostasy. So there are notable apostates. Apostate is a Jew who converts, in, the, in the, this particular case, to Christianity. And there have been notable Jewish apostates that have become some of the greatest antagonists to, um, to the Jewish community, including members of the Inquisition. I don't know if people... Uh, a large, a large number of the inquisitors and those who sparked the Inquisition. Um, for those, those who are not familiar with the Inquisition, which we will talk a little bit more about, the Inquisition was not out to get Jews. So there was the Spanish expulsion in the, in the late 1400s. And what happened up, and, up until that, Jews had a very simple choice. You could leave or you could convert to Christianity. It became apparent to the church that there were many insincere converts. The Inquisition came to expose them. Meaning, the, the Inquisition tried and, and tortured Christians who they believed were really secretly Jews, as opposed to torturing Jews. So, so if you're familiar with that, there's interesting. There's a, one of the documentaries I'll be showing uh, at some point during the year is there's one on the history of South American Jews. Because their number, I, I've read a. Um, I recently read a book called Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't know if anyone's read it. Huh? You probably heard about it from me. I probably mentioned it in another year. But um, the enormous amount of Jews that were involved in the establishment and settlements of Jamaica and, and, and a lot of the colonies around there who were Jewish um, conversos, these, these hidden Jews, that got out of Spain and Portugal and Amsterdam and the like, and fled to the new world as a way of escaping, and in time assimilated, and now, you know, what's happened to them. So, the, back to the, outside of the Spanish, uh, that short period of the, what's called the Golden Age of Spain, the vast majority, I can lend you the book if you want. <laughs> okay. Um, outside of those small areas, Jews were never offered opportunities into society. The concept of a Jew being educated, the Jew being, uh, you know, my son, the doctor, is a very recent statement. 
Now, they did exist. You might have had the Rambam, Maimonides, and Nachmanides that were doctors. But in the Ashkenazi world of European Jewry, there were no Jewish professionals. You, had, you might have had tailors, you had your Schneiders, you might have had your uh, you had a few other Jewish artisans. But as far as professionals, doctors, lawyers, whatnot, that's, that whole area was completely banned to the Jews. And so much more so that when you get to later stages, uh, I think I read this as a quote in Shulwan about Mark Twain, where he talks about the fact that the Jews became a useless member of society because their hands had withered from disuse. Because every, opportun- every commercial opportunity that was there, there was denied the Jews. So, all the, so the Jews couldn't be, use their hands, and they couldn't be farmers, and they couldn't do anything. So that the only thing they could do is banking. Because it was the one... One place that the church allowed the Jews to get involved because we could charge interest because the church liked Judaism. So the same way as that one Jew is not allowed to charge another Jew uh, interest on loans. It's called usury. So the church believed that one, a church cannot charge um, a fellow Christian interest. So the middleman that became the Jew conveniently became the scapegoat as well. So all of this starts changing in the 1800s with the Enlightenment. Now, the Enlightenment is uh, so multifaceted on so many different levels. But to, to talk about, and hopefully we will talk about him as a personality, and Baruch Spinoza in his uh, contributions to the Enlightenment and this whole new free thinking, this idea of individuality and this idea that we need to look beyond you know, the, you know, the, you know, the, the church and, and, and the synagogue, and start opening our doors to the broader society. And the first community to ever grant the Jews genuine rights as citizens of the country was Germany. Germany before Napoleon. So, ironic. So, so the Germans, I mean, it's, it's in the same time period, but, uh, but the, Germany was the first country that granted citizenship. What, real, what, what age are you talking about? We're talking 1800s. We're talking so in the early... Similar to France. I mean, oh, it's all... So it's all yeah, listen, yeah. The, the, the whole you know, period of the Enlightenment and, you know, is, is, is a process. And so where Christianity went through the Protestant Revolution and, and uh, what happened now is that opportunities were being afforded the Jewish community that had never been afforded before. And... But one of the exceptions, now Martin Luther, I don't know how much people know about uh, early Christianity, but Martin Luther, who was the, you know, the founder of what would be the Protestant movement, was of the mindset that one of the reasons Jude- the Jews have not embraced Christianity was because of the corruption of the church, specifically of the Catholic church. And when the Reformation came along, he was convinced that this new form of Christianity that has embraced the Reformation itself would automatically attract all the Jews and they would see the errors of their ways and convert to Christianity. When we did not, the anti-Semitism within Martin Luther was no less vile and vitriolic than that which had come from the Catholic Church. So Jews were still denied equal access to broad society, although there were opportunities and ways to get in there. And still the church became the passport to safety and security. The difference being is that the Jew himself was a lot more available and open to get in there. So, and, and at this stage, what, what, how, how, how big was the population of the Jews? Were they To the best of my knowledge, the Jewish community has not really... Uh, fluctuated tremendously since almost from the times of the you know the destruction of the temple that we have gone up and we've gone down due to a combination of uh, uh, persecutions and assimilations the Jewish population has at least for the last 200 years has not really changed terribly much so granted in the last 100 years we lost 6 million of our people but that being said in the big scheme of things our numbers have always been between 10 and 20, they have never really gone significantly larger or smaller. There are times, so pre-Second World War, where you have, if I'm not mistaken, in Warsaw it was more than 10% of the, of the population. We've uh, never tried to force conversion. We've never uh, made uh, people... We never tried to convert people. Correct, but Jew, Jewish population has an interesting way of self-culling. And well, it has an interesting way of keeping its numbers uh, secure. 
The one way has always been through assimilation and the other way has been through persecution. And there's no question that if you look to the modern era, that in a hundred years' time, there's no reason to think that the Jewish population is going to be any bigger than the way it is now. So will it be any smaller? Probably not. Because if you look at the Jews, because albeit that um, intermarriage may be roughly 50% in the vast majority of the developed world, um, the, the religious communities are having significant amount of children. So if you look in Israel, the Haredi population, which makes up, if I'm not mistaken, 12% of the Israeli population, is the fastest growing community, in, I mean, outside of the Arab community. But give it a generation or two, they might only be 12% now, but give it a generation or two, they'll probably be 30, 40% of the population. So what's... Huh? Israel, yeah, so demographics in Israel are going to be interesting. But what, what starts happening at this point in time, and, and this is something that um, is, I don't know how many people are aware of it, is this is where Reform Judaism starts developing. The late 1700s by a guy named Rabbi, Rabbi Abraham Geiger that becomes the real you know, powerhouse behind the early Reformation. Name rings a bell? You got Geigers in your family? So, so early reform Judaism uh, was incredibly radical. I mean, we, when we, I, I always meet people that have gone to America and they see reform Judaism there and they just can't get over it. I mean, I know people in my own community who, who go down to Chatswood or, or, or Willara and they struggle with the fact that there's a female rabbi or that men and women are sitting together or that women with kippot. They struggle. What we have today, even in the most radical reform synagogue, um, is so conservative and so traditional compared to what early, early reform Judaism was. Early Reform Judaism, first and foremost, they moved Shabbos to a Sunday. You don't know that. Shabbos was moved to a Sunday. The first pit for, it was called the Pittsburgh Platform, which started in the, in the, in the mid-1800s, was the first real Congress of American Jewry. They served shrimp and seafood at the original dinner. The, the, um, the, all references to Zion and a return to Israel were eradicated from the Siddur. Prayers were completely eradicated from Hebrew and all done in the vernacular. Everything was done in pure German. The concept of Germany, uh, Berlin is our new Jerusalem was, was, was iterated. We have no desire to return to the land of our forefathers. You know, Berlin is home. Now, Germany is going to be the focal point of the Reformation. It does spread. It never gets to Eastern Europe, ironically. Um, Eastern Europe, but the truth is the Enlightenment to a large degree, doesn't get to Eastern Europe. It does get to places like Hungary, but never gets into Poland. It never gets, at least not in any major way, into the, the East is still uh, able to maintain it. And the Jewish community itself is able to maintain it. But the Reformation, and, and this is the part that you might not be aware of, why did Reform Judaism start? So people think that Reform Judaism was trying to, you know, take Jews and make them Germans. And that's not why it started. It's still at this time, the, the droves of Jews that convert into Christianity was such a, a heavy tide that, the, that members of the, the, you know, the, of the Jewish establishment said, we have to find a way to stop Jews converting to Christianity. And that was the birth of reform. It was there to stop Jews converting to Christianity. It, wasn't, it was never looked at as a movement that was trying to get Orthodox Jews to become reform. In fact, the term Orthodox was born out of reform. Up until that point in time, you had Jews. You had observant Jews, you had less observant Jews. But the term Orthodox was used as a, as, as an, as a defining, a descriptive term of who we are not. We are the, we are the new reform, and reform... I mean, I think it, it might be used as a pejorative term within orthodox communities. But the term reform, generally speaking, is a very positive term. We need reform. You know, reform is showing you that systems have broken, there's corruption in, the, in, in whatever, you know, organization, and we need to bring reforms. And so reform Judaism, we need to, to reform Judaism. The same as Christianity had its reform, Islam is yet to have its reform. You know, and, and that's why one of the big challenges is that the East versus the West at the moment. But the Reformation was coming and said, we are no longer like the Orthodox. We are Reformed. And that, that, they, that was the real goal. Now, after Reform came uh, some of the subsequent movements, such as um, a guy named uh, Frankel, 
namesake, uh, started up uh, conservative Judaism, which was sort of a bridge between orthodoxy and reform. But the reform movement really sought to try make Judaism still meaningful, and it tried to prevent complete assimilation. So this is, you know, it was an assimilated community, the, the concept of halacha. So just so we can appreciate, the differences between reform Judaism and orthodox Judaism on a theological level. So both, at least originally, believed that God, there's a God. Both believed to some degree that God gave us the Torah. Modern day reform less so, but I think to the best of my knowledge, the, the, the early reformers still believed that there was a God-given Torah in some format or another. The big difference came in what we call the oral tradition. What the, we call the Gomorrah and the like, that the, that was completely foregone. There was no such thing as halacha. So within the reform movements, there was never halacha. So if there was something in the Old Testament that was no longer relevant or binding, like laws of Kashrut, like the laws of Shabbat, that in the modern era we need to do away with them, so they were done away with. And it was there to prevent complete assimilation. Within the Orthodox world now, you had two separate approaches. You had the approach of the isolation. So if you're going to Eastern Europe now, and this exists till this very day, if you go look into the Hasidic communities of the world, the Hasidic communities have said that once the, once the walls of the ghetto have come down, we need to artificially erect our own ghettos. We need to live in self-imposed ghettos. And what we're going to do is we are not... Not only we're we not going to conform too much, we're not going to conform at all. Whatever, if they do black, we'll do white. If they dress this way, we'll dress that way. We will dafka be the complete opposite of whatever they do. They want secular education, we will refuse any form of secular education. They want to speak this language, we will speak that language. We don't want anything to do with the non-Jewish world. We want to be pariahs. And we would be happier to be pariahs in society, rejected by that society, and even persecuted by that society, than risk assimilating one iota. Now, one, and, and this might sound a bit bizarre, but the, the, one of the most famous stories told of the Alter Rebbe, so the Alter Rebbe was the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, and there was the question between the Great War between Napoleon and the Tsar, and said, who should we support? Napoleon was offering rights, uh, civil, all basic civil rights and citizenships to, to, to all, all his citizens. And the Tsar was a known anti-Semite. And the Alter Rebbe said, we support the Tsar. We do not support Napoleon because we, the Jews may be safer under Napoleon, but Judaism is safer under the Tsar. And you ask any Lubavitcher and they will tell you that story. Absolutely, absolutely. And listen, even within the Hasidic communities, you'll get degrees. So, for example, Chabad are among, on the more, far more liberal side of the Hasidic communities. But if you go to Satma, so Satma, if anyone's had the pleasure or displeasure of being around the Satma community, I mean, Satma, so in, in just outside of New York, you're Kiryat Yoel, and in places where these people, I mean, there's, um, if you go, if you read in news at the moment, they're huge. I, I was reading, it, I was watching a PBS documentary yesterday. Um, that's public broadcast. That's uh, the ABC of America. And they were talking about these, these kids are coming. They, they not, it's not that they can't read and write because they stop basic secular education by, by, by year seven. But they can't speak English because all they speak in the communities is Yiddish. And the insular nature of those communities is that you cannot get out of them. There's not a, the, the, the idea of being a, a free thinker is not there. There's a, a Rebbe at the top, and the Rebbe dictates what is in and what is out. There is complete isolation. Now, this is not only in the Hasidic community. It's definitely most pronounced in the Hasidic community. But even within the non-Hasidic community, what we call the Misnagdim or the Litvaks or whatever the case might be, one of the great champions of Eastern European Jewry was the Khatam Sofer of Moshe Sofer, or Moshe Schreiber, who was from Hungary, was Pressburg. Um, and he was famously noted of saying, Chadash Asur Mina Torah, that it is anything new is prohibited according to the Torah. We don't allow anything new. Why? Because it's new. And the Torah goes old. And, and 
people live this. We need to isolate ourselves as far away as possible. So here you have, you know, two completely different worldviews that exist from, from the Enlightenment until the modern era. I mean, if you look at Kila Masada, so assimilationists, plenty of them, right? Plenty of people that have been... Baruch Hashem for Facebook. I can show you every shrimp meal had by every congregant who's very happy to put it on their Facebook. I was like, do they know that I'm their friend? Do they care that I'm their friend? You know? Some people love ribs and burgers. No name is mentioned. Anyway, so, uh, you know, you get this. So, so people who are, and I'm, that's like, that's a pathetic example. But amount, the amount of people that will show me, you know, their complete happiness to, to throw it all away. So that's the assimilation. Again, it's not a critique. It's, 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 it's an observation. There are Jews in the community that, that Judaism, is, you know, it, it served its purpose. For the years that, you know, you know, the world was backwards, Judaism served its purpose. But now we're in Australia or we're in America or in the UK, wherever the case might be. We just need to be part of broader society. The laws and rituals of Judaism are just old-fashioned and we need to move on. And if all my children marry out, then I will somehow change my, my, my whole philosophy. It's amazing. The amount of people that we've had in the community that have been very anti-intermarriage until their children intermarried, and then they embrace intermarriage as an ideal. Not as accepted as a reality, but embrace it as an ideal, which is a very, very interesting perspective. So you have that extreme. The isolationist, you wouldn't be living in St. Ives if you were an isolationist. I mean, let's be honest, it's, it, 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 doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't work. So in Australia, there are few, but it's very, very unusual. But then you get this third model, and it's the one I'd like to focus on for, for the rest of this evening, and that is this integrationist model. And integrationist, the, the first real, you know, uh, wise man, so to speak, of the Jewish community of the integrationist model. First one was a guy named Moses Mendelssohn, who was um, a phenomenally both observant and learned uh, Jew, both in secular sense as well as a, as a Torahic sense. He was very well respected within broader, you know, broader German society, um, and really saw this idea of somehow integrating a completely committed Jewish life, but still being a very active member of German society that you could be a Jew and a German both at home as well as uh, in the broader community. It's very interesting that the German Jews in particular had embraced German culture completely. So I don't know if you ever knew Yekka Jews. I mean, the, 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 Brits, uh, are, the Brits are descendants of Yekka Jews. But just, just so, if, uh, have you ever been? Huh? I'm not. Well, you're unusual. But uh, the, the, the Brits were of, of Yekka origin. The whole, all our customs... Or most of Kilat Masada's customs are German customs because we got them from the British Commonwealth. But um, if you've ever been to um, an observant Jew's family uh, for, for Shabbos, you might notice just before they bench at the end of the meal, they pass around this little cup of water and they do it on their fingers. Have you ever seen that before? Called Mai Machronim. Has anyone seen that before? You've never seen it before? Okay, so you need to go to more observant Jews for, for meals then. <laughs> so they put this Mai Machronim and it's washing your fingers before you bench. So why do they? So why they do that? So the, the Talmud says you should wash your fingers uh, before you bench. Sometimes you wash before you meal, and before you bench, you should wash your fingers. So the Germans don't do it. And why don't the Germans do it? So says Rav Yaakov Emden, who was one of the great rabbis of the 1700s. He says we don't do it because we do not eat with our fingers. It's as simple as that. Jew, a Jew, you eat with your fingers. What if your fingers are dirty? You have not been a mensch. You know, you don't know how to eat. So that whole, that is a German mindset, if ever there was a German mindset. So the two great ones was Mendelssohn, who ironically, even though he himself was incredibly pious in a religious sense and brilliant in a secular sense, has no Jewish descendants to talk of. Every single one of his children and grandchildren intermarried. In the great composer Mendelssohn was his grandson. Um, but very little Judaism remained. The people, the first people who were successful, so the most notable of which was Roshimshin Raphael Hirsch. So all of a sudden, within Eastern, within Germany, you found two great schools of rabbinic thought. One coming out of Berlin, and one coming out of Frankfurt. Out of Frankfurt was Roshimshin Raphael Hirsch. Out of Berlin was a guy named Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer. 
the, the entire Hildesheimer Seminary and everyone in it was killed in the Shoah, and therefore their legacy has been almost forgotten. But both schools, to, you know, to a certain degree, greater and lesser, saw an ideal that the Jew needed to be people of the world and needed to be proficient not only in the world of Torah, but in the world of secular education, and set up seminaries, uh, yeshivot, that would produce rabbis that would come out with a PhD, but could speak to the layman. Now, there was this, you should know, Eastern Europe, which was never exposed to the Enlightenment in any meaningful way, were completely opposed to all forms of German Jewry in this particular sense. But Rav Hildesheimer and Rav Hirsch demanded that the rabbi speak off the pulpit in German, which was revolutionary at the time, that they would be secular educated, that they all were rabbi doctor or doctor rabbi, something that still existed, that, that somehow you'd be able to look to and speak to your educated German Jews as people of, that were mentors of quality, but not only to be able to be secular as a pragmatic necessity, but be secular as a, of, as a Torah value and goal. Meaning that the, the, in the modern world today, and this is from the 1800s onwards, there have been two views of secular education. One, it's a, it's a, it's a necessity. What can we do? It's a necessary evil. We, we love to spend all day in yeshiva, but we've got to get a job. If you want to get a job, you've got to get an education. So you go get an education so you can get a job. But whatever you, that's the only purpose of education. That was pretty much Rav Schimpfer and Rafael Hirsch's um, philosophy. You know, the people debated this on a particular. But that was Rav You had another school of thought, and this was Rav Soloveitchik in particular, who started me, where that secular education was a value in and of itself. That when you learnt science, poetry, art, philosophy, you could bring that secular knowledge, you could use the wisdom of the nations of the world and bring it into your Torah. So for the, for in the modern year, look at something, someone like Rabbi Jonathan Sachs and you read his material and how he's able to take from the great men and women of history and show you how the Torah can be uh, colored and influenced and magnified by it. That is an absolute combination of taking the world of wisdom from the Torah as well as the secular world and integrate the two together. So these, you know, became the great leaders of German Jewry initially and to now, in a degree, exist in different worlds. So in the modern world, these three schools of integration, assimilation, isolation exist all over. Israel as a country is an assimilationist country almost completely. The vast majority of Israel, till this very day, is secular. And if you've met secular Israelis, a secular Israeli is not the same as a secular Australian. A secular Israeli doesn't know his Jewish aleph from his Jewish bait. He doesn't know what the Shema is. He's never heard of Yom Kippur as a religious day. For him, it is a day where you can ride bicycles on the highway. So, so you have that on a secular Israeli. Um, in, the, in, the, in the isolationist camp, both predominantly in New York, but you have them in Gateshead, you have it in... Uh, in, 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 you know, in where? So, Rabbi, so if you've got, uh, just following the train of thought, so integration would lead to assimilation, right? No, and this is the point, that isolation is an, is an ideology. Assimilation is, can be an ideology or can just be a consequence. But integration is, the firstly, it's the hardest of the, of the two because every single question has to be evaluated and has to be judged as to the value that it adds as opposed to the challenges that it brings. So, for example, if, as, if I look to, to my own life, where you know, the, the TV, so the TV has a lot of benefits, but it also has a lot of dangers. So to be isolationist you know, is, is much easier. You know, just cut it off. All the, all the pros and the cons out together because the negatives are too dangerous to dwell with them. To be an assimilationist, you just say, well, everything's kosher. So you try to do it in the middle. It means that everything is hard work. You have to evaluate every bit. But the integrationist definitely is more prone to assimilation because if the integrator is not capable and competent in passing on you know, the difficulty of that, of that lifestyle choice, there's a good chance that, that the, the next generation will just become assimilationist. And we do see that. What I, what I, if I look to, um, let's say, South African Jewry, 
I think South African Jewry, to a lesser degree, more so lesser than Australian and, and, and American of the last generations. I've looked at my parents' generation. It tried to be integrationist, but it was a um, it was an ignorant generation that wanted to maintain Jewish identity with uh, South African or, and then in time, Australian values, and somehow try to balance between the two. The problem is that there was very little of of real um, understanding of the Jewish side. It was much more just a pragmatic, practical. This is what we do, and there was very little learning behind it. Most of us didn't grow up with any real Jewish education. We, you grew up with a lot of Jewish ritual, but very little Jewish education, which meant that the next generation had even less. And that's, and that's now you say, so that integration is going to become a lot more assimilationist in the next generation. The leaders who are regarded as leaders, spiritual leaders, to move with the times in a way where um, there is a trend against the assimilation. Because I think, I think Jews as a, as a whole, um, not, and I'm not talking about educated and religious Jews, I'm talking about uh, my kids, for instance, would question the relevance uh, of staying Jewish above everything else. And yeah, so I, I saw a great and, and, and even to the point where they go, you know, I want to sit with my husband in shul, otherwise it's boring, and I don't know what's going on anyway. I saw a great video with Rabbi Sachs, because um, one of the things that reform, um, one of the, the the pictures of the reform movement has been the family that prays together stays together, and the question is. Is that true? I mean, it sounds, it sounds great. The question is, has the reform movement been successful in curbing the tide of assimilation? And the answer is, not only has it not been successful, it has been terribly unsuccessful. That every generation, the, the, the reform movement has had to redefine who is considered um, a Jew. And in a lenient way. So up at, in early, you know, the definition of a Jew was quite standard. It was a person whose mother was Jewish or they converted to Judaism. Um, of late, the, the standards of what's considered a conversion and who's, you know, as long as you have a Jewish parent or a Jewish grandparent has become sufficient. And so you keep broadening the definition of who's a Jew allows you to, you know, broaden your reach and who can come in. So as counterintuitive as it is, Sometimes the laxing of standards in a particular community has the reverse effect of achieving it. So Rabbi Sachs, just to get back to that story, so he said that when this question was asked to him, he said, let me ask you here. I'll, I'll tell you what he said. He said, okay, he says, which do you believe is the hardest festival as far as observance in the Jewish year? Pesach. 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 Okay. Which do you think is the easiest the easiest festival of the Jewish year, as far as observance. Well, Purim and Anything. Purim. Purim. Okay. Well, Purim, I don't even say, okay, say Purim. Okay. Let's be honest here. Who here keeps Pesach? Who here keeps Purim? Okay, but, but you hear what I'm saying? Is that the logic should dictate that everyone keeps Purim because it's easy and no one keeps Pesach because it's hard. But the opposite is true. The two hardest days of the Jewish year are, are, are Pesach and Yom Kippur, and they're the two most observed. The easiest days, the Shavuot, the two Bishvats, the, 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 no one does them. So, so that, that was what Rabbi Sachs said. I can't take credit for that. But that whole idea that somehow if we just make Judaism, if we bring down Judaism to the masses, then the masses will absorb it. The, the, the reality is not that way. We have to find a way of raising the masses to Judaism. So the reality is it's a tough gig because, you know, we've had generations of people, you know, who, are, who have diluted Judaism and now we have to somehow inspire them, educate them. But so that is tough. But we've got to keep the product as pure as possible. Otherwise, we definitely don't have a chance. I, I understand it's counterintuitive, but... Um, yeah, so... 
Well, okay. So, well, I think that the best litmus test of the success of the conservative movement is at the point that it is on the verge of collapse. In, in the, the, the conservative movement, if you go look in the, um, what the statistics are saying, that it is on the verge of combining um, with the reform movement. For those who are not familiar with the conservative movement, the conservative movement was pretty much the, the shul of choice for South African immigrants to the States because it offered, because where you had your traditional South African in South Africa who would um, only attend an Orthodox synagogue, even though themselves were not observant, arrived in America and found out that Orthodox shoes. Orthodox shuls were attended by Orthodox people, okay. and reform shuls were co completely off, so they wanted somewhere in between, and that's where the conservative movement sort of filled the great niche. Conservative Judaism, in a nutshell, were bound by the same halacha as the Orthodox, but reinterpreted the halacha to make it more palatable. So they would look, they would, they would never say, like the reform, halacha doesn't matter. They say halacha does matter, but halacha says this is permissible. That is how the conservative movement did it. The problem with the conservative movement, um, and in Israel, in, in America at the moment, so there's a, there's a new form of orthodoxy that's really gotten a lot of publicity over the last you know, 12 months in particular, called open orthodoxy. And the problem with it is if it doesn't have credibility, if the leaders of the movement don't have credibility in the eyes of the broader orthodox community, invariably it will just... You know, it will fizzle. The early leaders will be members of, of great scholarship, but because the movement itself is not one that promotes scholar, you know, scholarship, it will never produce scholars. And that's been the problem with the reform and the conservative movement. It pr produces dynamic leaders, charismatic leaders, perhaps phenomenal social activists, but scholars it doesn't, because being a scholar is not a value in the movements to the same degree. So a guy who comes... So, Krebs is not a scholar. I'm, you know, I'm first, I don't say that out of humble pie. I say that out of the reality is that to be a scholar, you need to spend 20 years in yeshiva. I did not. So I'm not a scholar. I, I know, but, but I accept that because I come from institutions where there are scholars. So I have my scholars to go to. But when you have a movement that doesn't produce any scholars, that's where the problems come in. Is that who's at the top of this? So... You know, if every every doctor's only a GP, and then, I mean, back in the days where GP was a standard, I don't mean to insult anyone, but uh, I understand when I grew up, it was like you did six years and you're automatically a GP, and then you specialised if you wanted to be on that. So if no one does the specialty, and everybody's just a GP. So then, yeah. in, in, in history, were people recognised in their time as scholars? As scholars? The early reform and conservative movement had a significant number of scholars but they never produced anyone in the next generation, like Geiger and Frankel. Frankel was a... We, you can get books in our library that have been published by Orthodox printing houses that were by, by Reform rabbis. All the people rabbis. that you, that you um, talk about, Emden and Soloveitchik and, and, and Geiger and all of these well-known rabbis, were they recognised at the time by their people as heroes? So, yeah. so, who, are, so who would be current... So you have to be in the system to appreciate it. You know, I, I, one of the things, like, if you look at Rabbi Sachs, so people say Rabbi Sachs is a scholar. Rabbi Sachs is a phenomenal orator, mm -hmm. and he's a, he's a great leader, mm -hmm. but he's not a rabbinic scholar by any stretch of the imagination. So if someone comes and says to me, oh, Rabbi Sachs said, I say, mm, okay, but it's Rabbi Sachs. You know, Rabbi Sachs is, is a very impressive guy, but he's not a scholar. So the scholars, an issue in the world, you know, says to me, who's the, who's the greatest brain surgeon in the world today? I wouldn't have a clue. You know, I, I might know who my local guy is, but I'm not going to know who the greatest one is. So the point is, does my local guy know who the greatest one is? And that's the point. So you're, I'm your local guy, and I can tell you who they are. So Rav Schechter, Rav Willig, Rav, uh, you know, Rav Lichtenstein who just passed away, you know, these are some of, you know, minds that, that are just unbelievably great. And, your pardon? No, America, and all, you know, Rav Lichtenstein, who passed away last year, who was my Rosh Hashiva, he had a PhD in, in philosophy from Harvard, and if you read any of his stuff, and I would l encourage you to read his stuff, I mean, he, he quotes Milton, you know, you, you read through it, the, 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 the English is of such a caliber, it is just, it's poetry, 
You know, he, not only is he quoting poetry, but it is poetry the way. So you see someone who's really able to do a, a beautiful integration. I just before I finish, and we are out of time. One of the things I wanted to do and just try to I'll start one example, which just shows you know this in in practice, because the the halacha has a lot to say on on these approaches and and where you would see people uh, um, addressing questions of modernity. In how we approach them, do we, in a, in, from a halakhi point of view? So the, the best example I can think of this, and it's uh, one that you may or may not be familiar with, is the question of machine-made matzahs. And this is a bit of a so. If you go to certain places, people think that from people use handmade matzahs, and those of us who are not that from, you know, use machine-made matzahs. So you always get your free uh, hand-made piece of cardboard from Rabbi Shapiro and Chabad, and they say, Gesundheit, right? you can have it. You eat the box and the matzah, it tastes exactly the same. Yeah? So, so, so you have that group, you know, and, and, and they believe that this is the best matzah. In the 1800s, at the, at the, well, no, in, the, in the mid-1800s, when the start of the Industrial Revolution, no, it was early in the 1700s, the start of the Industrial Revolution, someone came up with a matzah machine. And he said, and he came and he presented this to the rabbis, and he said, listen, I've got this machine that can roll out. You know, initially it was really being able to ensure that every piece of matzah was the exact same size and shape and baked for the exact same period of time, which eradicated human error from the matzah process. And he, wanted, he presented this to the rabbi saying, I have produced a machine that can produce halakhically superior matzah. And now you have two schools of thought within the rabbinate. Do we say, if science can bring better Torah observance to the world, we need to embrace science. And another school of thought saying, if it's new, it's forbidden. Say, so, but it's more kosher. Because you know, as much as you think that you've got some from Jew with payers rolling out your matzah, there's a good chance you've got some foreign worker from the eastern uh, Ukraine who's schwitzing away, but he's not, even, he's not even Jewish and he's making your matzah. I can tell you that half the matzahs that are made out of these factories are not made by Jews and are not under perfectly hygienic conditions. I can assure you that. From first hand account. The handmaids, yes. Not the boxes. Not the boxes. No, but I'm saying is that... So, so what, why do people have round handmade matzahs? It says because tradition, this is the way it's always been made and we are not going to change one iota. Then you have another school of thought where it comes and says, are you joking? It's not that we're saying you can use machine-made matzahs. We're saying you must use machine-made matzahs. They are halachically superior matzahs. And the other one's saying you may not use machine-made matzahs. So you've got these two schools of thought. They're pure integrationists that are looking at, at modernity and saying, if modernity is going to enhance our halachic lifestyle, we have to embrace it. And other ones say, if it's new, it's forbidden. And that's what you have in the world today. So like, for example, I use machine-made matzah. Why do I use machine-made matzah? Not because it's cheaper, not because it's tastier, because halachically it's better. And others will say, no, we will not use it because we've never used them in tradition. They didn't have machine-made matzah in Egypt, and we're not going to have machine-made matzah now. Nothing's going to change. But it's all these mindsets. So you'll start seeing, like every time you're going to still start seeing things in, in, that are happening in, in society, you're going to see all these schools of thoughts come out. So if there's something new. So you read through the pages of the Jewish news. You go see it. You'll see your assimilationists over there. You'll see your isolationists. So if you want to know, look in the letters to the editor. I can tell you who the names are. You'll see your isolationists. And somewhere in between, you'll see the integrationists. Wish you Sure. Okay. What these three groups? So the best of my knowledge, the only thing that has been universal in the Jewish community has been anti-Semitism. And that has been the great unifier of the Jewish community throughout. Because as much as we will divide amongst ourselves and, and claim how different I am from him, historically, the local non-Jewish oppressor didn't see those distinctions. Whereas I might be saying, you can't, I can't eat in your house and you can't eat in my house, along with came the great inquisitor, and he'll say, you know what, you can both burn in the ovens together. 
and it, it, it's fascinating uh, that those divisions, I mean, my, Tamar's, my wife's grandmother tells she was Hungarian, and she said, in Auschwitz, the Hungarians wanted nothing to do with the Poles. In Auschwitz. So these divisions between the Jews are ones that, uh, uh, but when it comes to our enemies, they, they, they see no color, they see no color, we are all the same. So is there a great jail? And it, it has been the great unifier. We'll see that um, in, in, I think it's the last, of, or the second last, or we'll be talking about the 70 faces of anti-Semitism, is you'll see throughout Jewish history that, you know, if you go look through the book of Judges, you can tell me I told you this already, the book of Judges says there's a process. Jews, there's peace. Then the Jews start going astray. Then the oppressor comes up. The Jews cry out to God. God sends a saviour. And that is the whole book of Judges, and that is the whole of Jewish history in a nutshell. And where are we in that, uh, uh, what's that, the continuum at the moment, in that cycle? Are we, no question, post-Holocaust, we were, you know, where we were. State of Israel, you could say that there was the, the great salvation and the Six-Day War up until, but where are we now? You know, I don't know. I don't know. All right, everybody, thank you very much.